Revelation 19. Getting close to the end of this book, this great last book of the Scriptures, and we're going to be talking today and next week about the best, most exciting thing that you and I ever will have to look forward to. And this is exciting news. This is good news. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is rather controversial, too. So far, I've gotten through almost all of Revelation without anybody, you know, throwing rocks at me or trying to fire me. I hope I can keep that record alive. But more importantly than the controversy is the hope that this gives us. Now, I want to start by telling you about a pastor named R.G. Lee. Some of you will know that name. Many of you won't. He's, he was a, a pastor, pastor at Bellevue Baptist in Memphis for decades and decades, uh, but this was in the first part of the 20th century. Um, if you know someone of a certain age, they've probably heard his sermon, Payday Someday. Uh, he preached that thousands of times, and, and it became very influential. You can probably find it online today. R.G. Lee once asked his mother, Mom, what was the happiest day of your life? And he, he thought maybe she'd say my wedding day or the day you were born or, or something like that. But instead, she said something very different. I want to read her words as he quoted them. It was during the war between the North and South. The men were all away. My mother, your grandmother, had to do the work of a man in the fields. She eked out a living for us from the farm. One day a letter came saying that my father, your grandfather Bennett, had been killed. That letter contained a great many kind words about his bravery and sacrifice. Mother did not cry much that day, but at night we could hear her sob in the dark of our small house. About four months later, it was summer and we were all sitting on the porch shelling beans. A man came down the road and mother watched him for a while. And then she said, Elizabeth, honey, don't think me strange, but that man coming yonder walks like your father. The man kept coming along the road, but we children thought it couldn't be him. As he came to the break in the fence where the path ran on, he turned in. Mother sprang from her chair, scattering beans everywhere. She began to run, and she yelled over her shoulders, Children, it's your father. She ran all the way across the field until they met. She kissed him and cried and held him for the longest time. And that, Robert Lee, was the happiest hour I ever knew. Can you see that? Can you picture that in your mind? Can you feel the happiness of that? You may have a moment that compares in terms of happiness. Maybe not. Maybe nothing that spectacular. But maybe you think back to some time when all your dreams all of a sudden came true or something you didn't expect could possibly be yours actually became yours. And I say that all of that, no matter what you're naming, pales in comparison to what we're going to talk about today. And I'm making a big promise. I'm writing a big check, but I believe the bank of heaven is going to cash it because when Christ returns, it will top everything you've ever experienced and more. It will put any great, wonderful accomplishment or gift or day or pleasure to shame. Now, my question for you before we get into this, and we're going to take time for the controversial parts, don't worry. My question for you when I, before we get into this is, do you feel that excitement now? And I'm not asking you for an outward response. You know, you don't have to shout amen to make me feel good. But I'm, I'm asking you to search your heart, let the Holy Spirit search your heart, and tell the truth to your own soul. Do I get excited when I think about Jesus returning? Because I say that most American Christians are hope poor. We're, we're abundantly rich in terms of possessions, in terms of freedom, in terms of pleasures. But we're poor in terms of hope because we put our hopes in things that don't pay off. 
We put our hopes in experiences and pleasures and relationships and jobs and accomplishments. And even if we achieve those things, even if we get the things we hope for, they don't pay off the way we think they will. It's like, it's like that, that, that chocolate dessert you see behind the glass and it looks so wonderful and you finally order it. And yeah, it tastes great, but then it's gone. And you can't, you know what? I've discovered you can't have your cake and eat it too. And that's our hope in this life. And, and so people will say, well, what, what about the next life? And as Christians, many of us, sad to say, our answer is, is rather pathetic. We'll say, well, you know, when I die, I'll go be with Jesus or I'll go to a better place. And that's all we'll say. And that sounds rather vague and not very exciting. So what is our hope? If your hope is not in something lasting, something that gets you really excited, then you're missing out. The, the first Christians, they didn't hope in dying and going to be with Jesus. They knew that was the case. They knew that, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, to, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. They knew that Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. They knew that that was good. So they didn't fear death. But that wasn't their hope. Their hope was, boy, I hope I'm alive when Jesus comes back. And even if I die before He comes back, that's what I'm going to be looking forward to. Up there in that heavenly city by His side, I'm still going to be knowing there's, there's, something, there's something still better on its way. So let me ask you again. Do you get excited when you think about the return of Christ? Is it something you think of often? Does it juice you up? Does it spur you on to a different kind of life? Or is it something that's like, yeah, 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 Jesus is coming back. I don't really know what that's going to be like. And I hope I get to experience a lot of stuff down here first. Because I feel like that's the way a lot of us feel. That's the way I felt most of my Christian life. And I hope that changes for you today. So let's take a look at what the Scriptures say about that day. Starting with verse 11 of chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations he will rule, who will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we could spend weeks upon weeks just deconstructing those verses we just read. I mean, just talking about the titles that John gives to his Lord Jesus, the, the terms that are used to describe him on the day of his return, this is stuff we're not familiar with. And maybe someday I will take time to just deconstruct that passage, and it, it'll be a several weeks long series. That would be an exciting series, I believe. But for now, let me just point out two things. First of all, I want you to notice how different Jesus' second coming is than His first. Because we know the story of His first coming. Jesus the first time came in absolute obscurity. No one saw Him coming. And when He was there, no one knew it. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given so God imparts to human hearts the glories of His heaven. That's little town of Bethlehem. That's one of our Christmas carols. The only people who knew Jesus had come were, were a small group of shepherds, the last people on earth you'd want at the birth of your child, and they only knew because angels interrupted their night and told them. 
And yet the second time he comes, everyone's going to know it. Whether Even if you don't want to know it, you're going to know it. Jesus said in Revelation 1, he will come and every eye will see him. It's not as though people will be like, um, so what happened yesterday? Well, Jesus returned. Oh, really? I didn't hear about that. No. Everyone will know it. Every eye will see it. It's not as though people will look up and see this rider on a white horse and go, well, I wonder who that is. Is that the Marlboro man? Nice beard? I don't know. No, they will know this is Jesus, and those who know him will rejoice, and those who don't will feel dread. He came the first time in poverty. His dad was a carpenter. He didn't make a lot of money. They had to sacrifice doves instead of a sheep on the day of his anointing or the day of his consecration. His parents weren't even married when he, got, when he was born. When he comes the second time, he won't come in poverty at all. He'll come in absolute glory. It will blind us. It will be so glorious. The first time he came to give his life away, to give his life for ours, to sacrifice himself. The second time, he won't come to give. He'll come to take. He'll come to claim this world that belongs to him, that he created, that he died to redeem. He'll claim it for himself. He'll come to rescue his people. He'll come to rescue and ransom his world and make it the way it was always meant to be. So yeah, the first thing we see about this is God's, Jesus' second coming is very different than His first. The second thing I want to point out is, notice it talks about the armies of heaven. Who do you think is in the armies of heaven? Well, I, I would think it would be angels, right? But no, I, I don't think that's what Revelation teaches. Revelation 17, uh, Revelation 17, if you may re- remember from last week, says they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. His called, chosen, and faithful followers, well, I think that's me, and that's many of you. So we might be in the army of heaven on the day of Christ's return. If we're not here when He returns, we might be riding alongside of Him. And you might say, I've never been on a horse in my life. You're going to be okay, okay? You'll be all right. I really believe that. I'm sure you'll find a nice gentle mount for you. So let's go on in chapter 19, verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. I should have told you before we read this, this is not one of the G-rated sections of the Bible, okay? This is a little gruesome, so just be ready. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 19. Why do they make this print so small? Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Yeah. I want, you, I want to point something out, though. This is, this is the only description in the Bible of the Battle of Armageddon. You know, last week we read the run-up to the battle and saw the armies massing on the plains of, of that place and, and ready to fight against the Lamb and His people. Notice how anticlimactic the actual battle is, though. You know, we're used to these epic works of fiction, Star Wars, Harry Potter, 
Lord of the Rings, where, where it's down to the wire, where you just don't know if Frodo's going to throw the, the ring into the fire, right? You don't know if, if Luke is going to be able to defeat the emperor. And, and, and all these, you know, it's, it's, it's right down to the wire between good and evil, and they're both equally strong, and it, and it depends on, on one last-minute decision by somebody who steps out of the woodwork to, to make the right choice, or, or a stroke of good luck happens and win overcomes. And that's the way we're used to, to seeing these battles described. But when it comes to the battle between good and evil in the real world, between the forces of Almighty God and the forces of all those who are opposed to Him, it's no contest. And it doesn't make as good a story, but I like it this way. I like not having to worry about it. I mean, if, to, make it, to, to say something incredibly petty, I'd rather beat the other team 64 to nothing than 31 to 30. I, it's just more fun that way, Right? It's just less stressful. And I'd rather my God be stronger than the enemy. I'd rather my God be the strongest of the strong. I'd rather the outcome already be determined. And that is the case here, my friends. We don't need to worry. And notice also, we don't even do anything. If we're in the armies of the King of Heaven, we may be riding alongside of Him, but it doesn't say we do any fighting. We just watch Him wipe up mop up and, and, and wreck shop and destroy the, the opposite side. Now, again, we talked about this last week. Does this describe a literal battle? Maybe so. But if so, it's a very quick and decisive battle. It says that they were destroyed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. That's Jesus. Now, I don't take that literally. I don't think that Jesus is going to have a literal sword protruding from his mouth. Maybe you do, and, and that's fine. But I don't, and so I think... I think either this means Jesus is just going to show up and say the word and everyone opposed to him is just going to be done. Or, like we said last week, the whole idea of the battle of Armageddon is a symbolic and very picturesque way of saying that when the Lord returns, everything opposed to the ways of God, in other words, the way things are, violence and hatred and racism and death and pain and poverty and sickness, all of it is going to be gone just like that. The way things are will be the way things were, a distant memory. Either way, Jesus wins. Either way, Christ sits on the throne. Either way, this world is redeemed. Now, let's get to the controversial part. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. 
And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what is this about? It depends on what school of thought you come from. Everybody agrees that it's about Jesus overcoming the devil. And when it talks about that ancient serpent, it's, it's referring to way back at the beginning of the Bible in, in Genesis chapter 2 when the devil uh, in the form of that serpent deceives Adam and Eve and, and causes that first sin that, that ruined God's world in the first place. And so it kind of comes full circle as, as the one who ruined the world uh, is destroyed at the end of the world. But what about this idea of a thousand years? What is this about? There's three schools of thought, and I want to run through them quickly because there are some of you who have a very strong idea about what this is about. Many of you don't, but it's important for you to know the different ways this has been interpreted historically. So three schools of thought. Number one is the premillennial school. Millennial, as in a thousand years, pre, well, it means before. So what this idea means is, or the premillennial school believes is that Chapter 20 should be taken literally. Every detail of it is literal, that there is going to be, after Jesus returns, a period of a thousand years in which he will rule on the earth, and he will rule over three different kinds of people. He'll rule over the people who are on the earth when he gets there who are his people. So if we're still alive when Jesus returns, according to this school of thought, we'll be, we'll be under his leadership. He'll also rule over people who were martyred in this life who will be resurrected at this point, and they will reign alongside of him. They'll sort of be his co-rulers. And then the third kind of person who will be alive during this period are people who are on the earth when Jesus returns, but who don't believe in him. And Jesus will return, and there will be millions and millions of people who aren't believers in Christ who will survive that period and who will enter into the time of the millennium. And they'll still be mortal, just like we will. There'll still be death. There will still be sin on the earth. There will still be a need for evangelism. At the end of that thousand years, the devil will be released, and he and, his, and those who ally with him will fight against King Jesus, and they'll be destroyed, and that will be the beginning of the new earth. Resurrection will take place, judgment, and so forth. Now, some may say, well, why, what's with the thousand years? Why would that happen? And people who are premillennialists will say it's to show all of humanity and all of, all of history that even if Jesus would have come the first time as a king and commanded our worship and, and just proved himself to everyone, still most people wouldn't have believed in him. It had to have been by grace. It had to have been through the cross. So that's one school of thought. Second school is the amillennial school. The word a in that means not, so these people don't believe there's a literal millennium. They think that that school of thought would say that chapter 20 is symbolic like so much of the book of Revelation, like so many of the numbers in this book. It's not to be taken literally. thousand years just refers to a long time. They would say that um, when, when it talks about the devil being bound, that happened at the cross. Colossians 2, after all, says that at the cross, Jesus, uh, Jesus put, uh, disarmed the rulers and authorities and led them in triumphal procession. So Jesus is, is, is over uh, all the evil forces of wickedness in this world. So the devil's already bound. And that this, just, this is just a description of the age in which we live now. And they would say, if you go back through Revelation, there are all these cycles. It tells the same story over and over again. The seven seals... Sounds a lot like the seven trumpets. Sounds a lot like the seven bowls of God's wrath. Every time it tells a story of things getting worse and worse and then Jesus returning and everything getting better. And this is just one more time through that cycle. That's the amillennialist. And then there's postmillennial. That's the third school of thought. In this, in this way of thinking, 
the idea is that the gospel will spread to every nation, every people group, every language. So many people will come to know Christ and will start to live the lives of true disciples that poverty will be wiped out because we'll be generous according to the Scriptures. War will be, wars will cease. We'll bring peace on earth. There will be an end to division among human beings. Uh, we'll, we'll discover the cures to many diseases, so human life will be radically extended, and we'll basically enter into a golden age of humanity because the kingdom of God will come, that, that God's kingdom will come as will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And at the end of that time, that golden age, the Lord will show up and basically ascend to the throne of a kingdom that we have built for Him through the power of His Holy Spirit. It's a very optimistic way of looking at chapter 20. Here's the thing, and I'm not trying to argue against postmillennial. If, if that's your view, more power to you. But this was a very, very popular view until about 100 years ago. You know what happened about 100 years ago that changed people's minds? A little thing we call World War I that they called the war to end all wars. And when human beings saw the most civilized nations on earth destroying each other by the hundreds of thousands for no good reason, with nothing really gained. And then a generation later, we did it all over again in World War II. People got the idea, you know, maybe this human progress is not actually happening. Maybe life on earth isn't getting better like we thought it was. And yet there are still people who believe in this school of thought that as the gospel spreads, we just need to do more evangelism. We just need to share the gospel more and, and live out our faith, and we will bring about the kingdom of God on earth. Now, those are the three, and I encourage you to do more study. I don't have time to get into details. There's resources on the internet you can read. Even better, you can find books that do an excellent job of summing up each of the three schools of thought, and I would urge you to do that study. It's profitable study. I will just tell you, if you're wondering what I am, I fall into a fourth school of thought, and that is pan-millennial, which means I believe it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> And I know that when I say that, people who are really strongly in one of these three get angry at me. They're like, man, this is no joking matter. And I'm not joking. Because, yes, I think it is profitable to study this stuff. And if you feel strongly about one of these, then fine. But you feeling strongly about it is not going to save anybody's soul. And on the day Christ returns, He's not going to line us up like in a game of Jeopardy and say, okay, who can tell me which millennial school of thought was right? Who bought into the right school of thought? Because those are the ones who are getting in. Hallelujah. It's not going to be about how much you know. You know what? It's about who you know. And it's about Jesus Christ, the Savior of souls. And we, you know, knowing the truth and studying the truth is excellent. I believe in education. I believe in study. That is my favorite spiritual discipline. But knowledge doesn't save anyone. Knowledge alone. What is going to save people's souls is if we actually live out the faith that Christ has given us. Live out grace and truth and integrity, righteousness, compassion, and humility, and love people in His name in a way they can't find anywhere else. So it's going to pan out. On that day, I guarantee you, no one is going to stand up and say, wait a second, Lord, this is not the way I had it planned. We're all just going to sit back in awe and watch as the King of the universe takes His rightful throne, and we're going to rejoice. And in the meantime, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at chapter, let's look at verse 11. Verse 11 continues the story. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as it recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is it. This is judgment day. This is what, this is what the, the Scriptures have been pointing to since the very beginning. And this is the, the actual description of what that day will be like. And I want you to think about the absolute terror and dread. I mean, it's bad enough when you're a kid to get called into the principal's office, right? It's bad enough when your boss calls you and says, hey, I need, I need to talk to you. It's bad enough, right, when your girlfriend says, we need to talk. But imagine on this certain day, this day when Christ returns, imagine standing in front of literally all of humanity and thousands upon thousands of angels and God Himself clothed in immense righteousness and unspeakable holiness. And he opens this book and he says, well, here's the record of your life. Let's read this. And you start thinking to yourself, oh no. All that stuff I thought, all, all, all those things I said that I didn't think anybody heard, all those, all those deeds I, I'd done that I thought I got away with, that's all going to be brought to light now. I, I, I thought I was good at shielding myself from consequences, but now... It's all going to happen. And I don't know about you, but here's the truth about me, and, and I hope you can accept it. I may look like a pretty good guy, but if you line up all my bad deeds and all my good deeds, and you put them on opposite sides of a scale, my bad deeds will outweigh the good every time. And especially when you consider most of the good deeds, almost all the good deeds I've ever done, were really done for selfish reasons, to make myself look good or to impress others or to get something out of someone else. And if all that comes to light someday, if Jesus reads all of that out before me and before all of humanity, I am sunk. I am lost. That's going to be an awful day. That's going to be the worst of days. And it's going to be reality. It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? There's this other book, though. Thank God for this other book. And it's called The Book of Life. And it's spoken of in the Psalms. It's spoken of in the prophet Malachi. Moses talked about it. Jesus talked about it extensively. If your name is written in the book of life, it's essentially a roll call that says, this is mine, this is mine, this one is my child, my daughter, my son. If you're in that book, then it doesn't matter what's in the other book. If you're in that book, then you're forgiven. If you're in that book, then you're going to be okay. And can we know that our name is in there? See, that's, that's what you should be asking yourself right now. Is there any way to know for sure that my name is in there? A lot of people would say, no, you just have to do the best you can and wait till that day comes. And it, It's arrogant to say anything more. And it would be arrogant to say anything more if we earned our way into the book, but we don't. I want to show you a couple of Scriptures. There's many, many I could show you, but John 6.40 says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. That's talking about our bodily resurrection when Jesus returns. It's talking about our salvation. Let me ask you something, reading comprehension here. Does it say that everyone who has lived an exemplary moral life will be raised up at the last day? Does it? 
No. Does it say everyone who went to the right kind of church? No. Does it say everyone who gave a certain amount of money or everyone who memorized a certain portion of Scripture or everyone who didn't commit these certain sins? I mean, these are okay over here, but these, these deadly ones over here, boy, if you do those, you're out. It doesn't say any of that. In fact, in fact there may be people who you look at and think, man, that person's morally and, 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 and in every way better than me, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him. That's what's going to matter. If you believe in the Son, if you believe in His death for you, and you accept the gift that He has bought you with His blood, then your name is there and it can't be erased. Unerasable ink. And that means something really wonderful. I want to show you another Scripture. Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8 both say the same thing. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God wanted us to know this so much, He put it in His Word twice, both the Old and the New Testaments. What He's saying is, this is wonderful, that book that has the record of all your bad deeds and all the things you should have done but didn't, once you become His, all that stuff is erased. It's gone. You will not have to stand before the Father and listen to your evil deeds read before you. You will not have to feel the shame and, and the, the regret of a life lived far less than perfectly. You know why? This is the most unfair thing ever and yet the most glorious thing ever. On the day you stand before the Lord, He will open the book and what He will see instead of your life is the life of His perfect Son. You know why? Because on Good Friday, He looked at His perfect Son and He saw your life and my life. And Jesus got what we deserved so that we could get what He deserves. And so on that day, if your name is written in that book, in the Lamb's book of life, you have nothing to fear and everything to rejoice in. And the only apprehension, the only anxiety you should have is, am I doing everything that I should be doing now to get ready for that day? Not to get myself ready. Jesus did that but to tell as many people as possible, to show them the love of Christ, to, to give them every opportunity possible for them to have their name written in that book as well. Because you have people that you love dearly. You have people that God has entrusted to you who right now are not written in that book. And it's up to us to live with a life of urgency, a life that, that matters for eternity. And think about R.G. Lee and his, his grandmother seeing her husband run across that field and recognize this, this man who I thought I'd lost, this father to my children who I thought was gone is here. Think about the joy for him. R.G. Lee wrote these words years ago. He said, and yet that is but a small joy compared to the day we see the face of Jesus. Are you excited about that? See, if you're not excited, one of two things is true. Either you're not sure your name is written in the book. And that's the most important thing today is that you get that right today. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song and you'll have an opportunity to walk forward and just say, I need to get this straight now. And Alan and I will help you make that next step. For many of us here though, we know our name is written in that book because we know we've trusted Christ, but we're not excited and we don't know why. We're just a little too caught up in the things of this world we need to pray. I hope you'll read the, the article I wrote in the, in the bulletin this week and just pray, Lord, 
Help me to focus on eternity. Help me to get excited about Your return. Lord, help me to live a life that's eternally significant and not waste the 70, 80, 90 years, however, God, however many God gives us. It's the only opportunity we have to love those who don't know You. Only opportunity I have to reach out to those who are hurting. Someday, it's going to be the best day of our lives. And being excited about that, being happy about that, being filled with hope about that is the only way to live the life we were called to live. Let's walk in that hope. Let's call on Jesus to give us, to teach us, to train us in that hope.